welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. How we doing, everybody? Welcome back. We're in the groove again. We've got interviews coming out every Thursday here on the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week, my guest is Dr. Deb Miller. Deb is a Missouri and Pennsylvania licensed professional counselor with over 30 years in private practice as a therapist working with couples, families, adults, teens, and children. She has a background as an educator specializing in the needs of at-risk children, has served as a visiting assistant university professor in counselor education, and has worked as a school counselor. Dr. Miller has a wide breadth of experiences in helping people heal and cope with their challenges. And today we discuss her book, More Than Sorry, Five Steps to Deepen Your Apology After You Have Committed Infidelity. So this is this conversation is not just for people who have committed infidelity and are looking to deepen their apology. I think this is an important conversation to have at a societal level to talk about things like infidelity. It's quite common. I think it's safe to say everyone listening right now has either cheated, been cheated on, or knows someone who has experienced it from either end. And I think like drugs and alcohol, like mental health issues, this is something that is not going to go away. Humans are messy. So I really appreciate that Dr. Miller created a resource to offer some steps people can take who really do have remorse and do want to make amends with their partner. Along the way, we have a really nice conversation about relationships in general. So defining cheating, defining emotional compared to physical cheating. What does it mean to be emotionally available in a relationship? Defining intimacy and how to maintain it. And communicating empathy as opposed to just saying I am empathetic or believing one is empathetic. How do we actually communicate it to our partners to make sure they feel it and they know it? Dr. Miller is very insightful and I really appreciate her coming on the program. So, And with that, I just want to put out a gentle nudge or reminder to anyone listening who has potentially committed infidelity or been dishonest or made some kind of mistake in the relationship that it's never too late to come clean, if you will. It's never too late to be honest and give your partner the respect of full information. It's scary, but I think that being truthful and being honest about our mistakes with our partner is the ultimate sign of love and respect to give them full information, and then potentially move forward together or figure out whatever that looks like for each particular couple. So I'll leave you with that. Big thanks to Dr. Miller. Go check out drdebmiller.com to see her work. Kick back, relax, enjoy this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast, and we'll see you next Thursday. Okay, and we are recording. Dr. Miller, welcome to the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Glad to be here. For sure, good to see you again. We had a a first a first attempt that I uh, I stuffed up with technical issues. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming back on the program. That was a good warm up. I'm yeah, anxious. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you are a um, therapist by trade, uh, correct? Working for over thirty years with mm-hmm. clients and. You developed um, this book and a lot through a lot of practice with your with your clients. So, before I kind of dive in and we dive in, could you just give us a, an overview of kind of your path to yeah. uh, this work, please? Sure. Well, as you said, I've been a mental health therapist for quite a while, thirty years. You know, I did some teaching at university level, and but before that, I worked with um, at risk youth and uh, as an educator and a counselor. And so as I moved into private practice, um, I started working a lot with couples and couples were primarily coming to therapy as a result of um, the aftermath of an affair, trying to repair things. And I kept the theme kept repeating over and over again, where the person that, that had the affair just had not much to say. They were fairly mute uh, when asked why or say more, they just wanted to say, I'm sorry, push it away and not really um, dive, dive into what happened or motivation, what they learned. And so, you know, 
the, the therapy sessions were dominated by the person that was wounded, the person that was hurt by the betrayal. Understandably, that person needs lots of support. Um, but as far as the couples repairing their relationship, it kind of got stuck because it was one sided, you know, and it was still this a, a blame game, which I think that's part of the of the journey of repairing is there has to be a lot of anger communicated and um, pretty emotional to get through it. And so for the person who had the affair, for the person who cheated, it was really a challenge to know what words to use, know how to cope with um, all this emotion being directed at them as well as their own self image and view. And so I decided that there wasn't enough material out there in the professional world for that person. You know, most of the books around affair repair focus primarily on supporting the, the wounded, the hurt person. So my book is called um, More Than Sorry, Five Steps to Deepen Your Apology After You've Committed Infidelity. And so it's a niche art audience you know, it's focusing on that. But I think there's um, it can be translated into anybody trying to say more than I'm sorry. Um, how, you know, you can talk about some simple things like, um, forgetting to return a phone call or um, saying a hurtful thing to someone. Um, you know, there's ways to, to apologize that are, have a lot more meaning than just the words, I'm sorry, which is ironically what we're taught to do as children. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And my, my motivation to talk about it on the program too, is that it's, it's nicely aligned with, the theme of shedding light on things that are often overlooked or we're kind of conditioned to not talk about. So infidelity is, I feel common in the sense that many of us similar to mental health issues or experiences with addiction, these things happen in families. They happen in community. Like I, I would feel like everyone listening knows someone who in their life either has committed an affair or was cheated on. So why is there not a discussion? Why are, why are there not resources like you're saying? And yes. I, f- I also feel like personally it's similar to drug use, for example. It's something that is never going to go away. Humans are quite messy. <laughs> right. So right. let's be let's be realistic about it. And like you did create a resource for first people to help navigate it instead of kind of pretending it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it gets to a, a stereotype that we all have, you know, we want to condemn the cheater and, you know, right. They, they messed up. They, they hurt someone. They chose a path that um, probably didn't align with their own moral code as well as um, was a horrible secret that, that left scars probably for the people around them. But that also implies that they're never going to get better, that they never can fix it, that they can never make change. And so hopefully buried in this book is not buried, but um, highlighted in this book is the fact that you can find redemption. You can find repair. Um, but as far as following the audience for your Bro Nouveau, it's it's suggesting that, you know, it's it's fighting any stereotype about, Again, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say I'm sorry. Let's not talk about it anymore. About being open, being vulnerable, being um, allowing your raw self to show, as well as seeking help from other people. Um, because it is a, a shame game, certainly. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. And like addiction. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the thing that would happen with just saying sorry and kind of not yeah, exposing the raw self, as you said, is that for the person who was hurt, then they can't understand. You know, I would imagine that the person who is hurt wants to know why, really, truly tell me why. And, yes. you know, give the person who was hurt the full information so they can make a decision about moving forward. Because rather than just saying, honey, I'm so sorry, it was a mistake, you know, because... Mm-hmm. It's almost like, uh, you know, I could, I could see in that situation, say it's like a long-term partnership situation where somebody 
cheats and then they are discovered and instead of kind of deepening the shame or making it worse and, and acknowledging, you know what, hey, I think actually I'm I'm deeply unhappy or there are things about this other person that I like a lot, you know, instead of being honest and like being brave to admit that kind of doubling down on the no, no, it was a mistake. And then it's like, well, you're perpetuating unhappiness for both of you in the future too, because of a uh, ego. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the challenge is when we want to say, I'm sorry, we're trying to, first of all, push away our own flaws, push away our own sin, but we're also trying to protect the person we hurt from knowing more. So the fear is if I talk to you more about what I did wrong, um, then that's going to give you more uh, pain. That's going to induce more memories, uh, flashbacks. You know, it's going to be like rubbing salt in the wound. And so there is a challenge on how to explore what happened because most people I met have not told their affair story. Yeah, I cheated, and but, you know, to really push them, like, well, how many times, you know, because there's the what, what happened that that a lot of the time the wounded person wants to know, which may or may not be helpful. I mean, it's helpful for a while, but after a while, it's like, you don't need to know what hotel room was used and, you know, which car you drove. I mean, it, some of that detail is, is just creating a stronger image of pain. Um, but back to what you said about why, and that is what the wounded person just doesn't get why, you know, and, and that answer to why isn't a black, white answer. In other words, my answer today of why I chose to hurt you or why I chose to have a secret relationship would be different perhaps a month from now or two years from now when I've really learned more about myself, been able to look back at what happened differently. And so that's the courage also to keep, asking yourself why, as well as attempting to answer it. And, you know, just like, again, back to being a little kid, why'd you break that window? I don't know. You know, that's our first answer is I don't know. (laughs) You don't know unless you think about it. You know, it was an impulse. It was, you know, it's, it's almost like making guesses or psychoanalyzing yourself. Um, And so that's a journey that, I really encourage people to do with someone else. And so this book is kind of a journaling self-help book, but it's also intended to work with someone else. And I know access to mental health people is tough, especially in today's COVID world. Um, But, you know, even trying finding a trusted friend who can be um, supportive and neutral and um, encouraging for your exploration, that would be very powerful also. Totally. Especially if this is something that was kind of shrouded in secrecy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the person who did cheat to be able to share that and talk about it with somebody. I mean, I would imagine that like, let's say someone was cheating and then was discovered, you know, how are their friends going to react? How is their family, their immediate family from growing up? How are they going to react? Are they going to be, ostracized or outcasted and yeah it's mm-hmm. it's it's really tough but i think it to kind of um extend it out to like more circumstances like you referenced in the beginning what i have learned recently in, in my relationship and trying to <laughs> i guess is adulthood you know as, as a young person is that for me and and when and I want to forgive people part of the process is to see them do something similar like this so explain why own it not deflect not push it away or blame other people or say well it was a two-way street yeah obviously like every conflict in human history involves two people okay. <laughs> even if they're both inside themselves right like mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah and so I guess one one question I have about the couples you worked with, if you were to give a breakdown of how many, how many of the people who were cheated on walked away, how many said, mm-hmm. you know what, 
what percentage wise, like I, I don't, I can't do this. Yeah. I would say a third, a third definitely walk away and they don't really come to therapy much. You know, they want to come more to information, but they, and especially if they, their support people, you know, are like, you can't stay, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater. You know, there's a lot of pressure on them to leave. Um, sadly, the, the, I, there's always the one third rule, one third will leave right away. One third will stick it out, but they really haven't dealt with it well. And then one third, hopefully will actually dive in and try to um, answer the whys and explore and really work on improving and changing their relationship. Um, so that's, that's the part you have to let go of, you know, I mean, people have an internal, um, decision-making going on, whether or not they're going to let go and stick it out or whether they just don't trust it. And there's always a history. And as a therapist, you have to work with what comes into your office and you don't know, you know, you have to trust people to really make the best choices for themselves. Um, and so you try to echo or hold up a mirror for them to see themselves in order to figure out what's best for them. That's the challenge. Um, so it's, it's, um, discouraging. I mean, the whole statistics around relationships, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce and, you know, 25% of people have affairs, but you know, who knows if those are accurate actually, especially now with online relationships. I mean, that's another statistic that I know we're under reporting. Um, because especially during this COVID, this pandemic, I mean, we're, we're all bored. We're all a little isolated and, you know, so it's so easy to start chatting with someone innocently, perhaps, and then who knows if it could develop more. But if the definition of an affair is that it's a secret relationship, even though it may not be physical, um, it's turning to someone else to meet some of your needs, which, of course, we all want to have a community of people around us because we know one person can't meet all of our needs. We have to decide um, how to get our emotional needs met from many people perhaps, but not step over that line. And that's the, the tough challenge part. What is the line of um, betrayal? Totally. Yeah. So that gets mm-hmm. to the whole idea of emotional cheating and mm-hmm. Physical cheating. So how, how would you define that, that emotional component? Yeah. Emotional is when you, um, good question. <laughs> good question. Emotional is when you really open up yourself to someone and you share your, your inner thoughts, feelings, dreams with someone that you're not sharing with your significant other, you know, that you, um, start developing, um, a connection that, um, again, is a secret that is not necessarily um, shared with your significant other. Um, and so, you know, we could argue, well, you have, we have best friends, you know, that's okay. We should all have some best friends that aren't necessarily our partner, um, where we can share things that we don't necessarily share. So it's just knowing, you know, the question is, would my, would my partner be offended to know that I've, spending this much time with that person, because that's the other thing, you know, it's just so easy to the addiction of it, you know, like to continuing to text or continue to check your Facebook or continuing to email each other, you know, and that's can get, if it gets in the way of uh, being emotionally available for your partner, then that's dangerous. Totally. That clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Physical is easy to define, obviously. Right. Start touching, kissing, having sex. That's over the line. If that's the agreement you <laughs> yeah. have with your spouse, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's another good one too. I feel like for definitions, because that term "emotionally available" is one that I've used. And yeah, but how would you define that as well? What is what available. is it to be emotionally available in a relationship? It's saying out loud, saying out loud what you think and feel. It's saying out loud um, what thoughts are going through your head and, and you know, the whole simple, hi, how are you? You know, to, to most people, we're going to say, fine, you know, I'm busy or whatever. But to your partner, 
and it's not a daily thing, but you know, how am I? Well, let me, let me delve into that and let me think about it. So it's in order to be emotionally available to others, you have to be emotionally honest with yourself. You know, how can you communicate it to someone else if you don't get it yourself? So you have to really um, spend some time internally checking in with yourself, questioning yourself, learning about yourself. And, you know, there's a whole chapter in that in my book about self-exploration. Um, you know, and it's, again, we have different personalities. So some of us are going to be more prone to that. Um, and some of us are going to be like more avoidant of it, but is that how you would define emotionally available? Yeah, I think so. I think verbalizing it is a great necessary component because in an argument, for example, like last night, Kendall and I were in an argument and after about five minutes, I was able to say, Hey, I'm having an emotional reaction to these factors leading me to act this way. It's not logical and I, it'll blow over, but right now I'm just upset and that's why I'm acting snarky or, you know, whatever I was doing. And so I think in that moment, you know, being able to communicate what was happening to me and why I was acting out, you know, hopefully could help provide her some context and, and at least was had enough self-awareness to say, Hey, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I also feel like that's an example kind of in a more extreme condition or more in an acute stress kind of situation, like, like an argument. But normally for me, maybe say if I'm tired and I'm stressed and maybe I don't want to do the mental and, you know, mental effort of recounting my day or, Mm-hmm. going through who did I talk to that really excited me? Who, what interesting conversations did I have? What did I read that, that I found interesting? You know, what was my high? What was my low on a good day? I'll probably be ready to share all of that, but on a bad day, maybe if I don't want to, I feel like that's for me kind of being emotionally available is making that effort. Even if I don't really want to, because I, I want to strengthen the relationship and I care about this person and our connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that just reflects, Thomas, you're, you're very strong in your own self-awareness and you're certainly capable and competent in terms of saying out loud what you're thinking and feeling. I mean, I, I would imagine that your argument with Kendall last night <laughs> ended well. I would imagine yeah. yeah, that that was important for you to own because you owned it, that you were feeling snarky and making guesses <laughs> as to why, right? Yeah. Excellent. Totally. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I think the challenge is when we have our roller coaster emotions. You know, some days we're going to be really aware and competent in terms of communicating what we're feeling and thinking. And other days we're like, I don't want to. I just don't want to. And that's okay too. I mean, if you have that foundation of trust in your relationship for you to just, you know, be able to say, honey, today is not a good day. I'll give me, give me a day off here. You know, and I think ideally that's okay. If too many days happen, then yeah, it's not, not healthy, but, um, you know, we are human and we don't, we, we get to have a whole range of emotions, a whole range of, uh, energy, um, for doing the work in a relationship. And sometimes, you know, just being comfortable in a relationship, um, is what we all are seeking. Like, Oh, this is just easy. I don't want to have to work at it, but that kind of can be a danger, if, the, if it's so comfortable for so long, I think we then get in danger of um, forgetting to notice how the other person is doing and about our intimacy. You know, I, yes. intimacy is a, a challenge. You know, we certainly have physical intimacy. We all can understand that one. We're talking a little bit about emotional intimacy, about being open and sharing our thoughts and feelings. But there's also spiritual intimacy, um, intellectual intimacy. There's different ways of um, really talking to someone, you know, really connecting with someone. And it may take intentionality on your part to, to, to do the work, to, to say, I'm going to ask these questions or I'm going to be asked, be curious 
um, about what my partner or friend really thinks about these things and try, like you said, try. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's, for me, it's a bit of a, a mental algorithm of, okay. Similar to the, uh, uh, an effort like maintaining a podcast or performing at work or maintaining physical fitness. Yeah. There, there are those moments where I don't want to do it, but if I believe in the end result and I'm, my motivation is strong enough in what's going to happen through consistency, then that demands that that takes over in the hierarchy of importance. Yeah. 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 The, the physical intimacy one, or actually this, well, I guess two things. One, this whole idea about intimacy being multifaceted and not just physical is really cool because yeah, I mean, hormones change, right? Like later in life, you know, I'm learning more about how men (laughs) start to change in their forties, which is, uh, like in, uh, you know, people talking about, uh, like TRT testosterone replacement therapy, you know, for, for older men and like when to do that, if to do that, that kind of thing. But, yeah, the the maintenance of physical intimacy, and I, you know, I would love your perspective on this. I would imagine that maybe it's a similar thing. It's like, and this is also cool because this is like proactive work that can be done to prevent an affair, right? Be like, okay, mm-hmm. we're having mm-hmm. less sex than we used to, for example, or we're not. The spark is fading, or some of these situations. So what is the agreement we make or what, what are we shooting for? Is it to have a, a intimate date night once a week to maintain or spending an hour to, you know, intentionally focus on finding the spark or whatever it is and like kind of trying to agree to it. That could also maybe prevent a situation where someone does step out and find that, yes. you know, the excitement. Yeah. I mean, sex is just really powerful. I mean, it, it lightens moods and, you know, intensifies the connection to someone else. It's fun. I mean, there's just a lot of positives about it. And so sadly, a lot of couples with resentment build up resentment over the years and um, sex can be kind of a punishment to like, I'm going to withhold this from you, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then, Oh, you sleep better when you sleep in another room because you snore. And I don't know, they just, you get lazy somehow. <laughs> You know, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you're like, well, wait, did we have sex last month? I don't, you know, and all of a sudden it's um, something to be conscious of and noticing. And so, you know, you really encourage couples to figure out how to be intimate again, how to even just how to hold hands, how to sit next to each other on the couch, how to give hugs, how to um, touch more frequently and ideally have sex because I think it um, releases a lot of um hormones. And, and again, the connection is so powerful. And so when people look elsewhere for the physical, you know, it's because it's, they're looking to feel better about themselves. They're looking to have some fun, you know, looking to have um, some way of feeling important and feel good about themselves. You know, it's a very powerful, very powerful thing. And so, you know, the challenge is to get couples to own that. And that's, you know, it's really interesting. I'm not a sex therapist. I mean, I talk about sex openly with, with clients, but, um, you know, it's awkward for people to talk about it, especially with their partner, about what feels good and what doesn't feel good mm-hmm. and how should we improve ourselves and um, be more loving. And honestly, sometimes it gets back to this basic concept of, do you like the other person? You know, when you ask couples, you know, they'll say, oh, I love, I love so-and-so. We've lived a life together or we've had two, two years together. And, but do you like them? Right. You know? And so if you don't like your partner, it's really going to be hard to feel vulnerable and sexy and open with them on a emotional, physical level. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a tough part. And that's where I you know, get into a lot. Um, and therapy is what do you like about your partner? You know, cause I think we tend to get attracted initially to people that are very opposite of who we are. You know, it's kind of the yin yang 
compliment. Mm-hmm. Um, that is cool. But then after we've been with someone for a while, then we start resenting how they're different from us, you know? And so that's, that's the challenge is to be, Oh, yay. I didn't marry <laughs> someone. I didn't couple with someone who's just like me. Thank goodness. And how can I value their mm. idiosyncrasies that if I want to call them that or uniqueness or differences and see them as valuable. Um, yeah. My husband, I've been married 45 years, something like that. And, um, you know, we have figured out, you know, we're, we have a lot of um, respect for each other and like of each other, but it's been work. And we have to recognize that there's some silly things like uh, organization, you know, he's super mm. great at being organized and I'm, I have my own style, but it's not, not as good as his and, you know, how to, how to figure out, the boundaries around that and how to not condemn each other for being different. Um, so that's, it's work. Relationships are work. For sure. Totally. That's fascinating. I, I love that. Cause that process of rediscovering or discovering more about your partner keeps things. I don't know. It's like, it's like, a, it's a cool ideal or to me, it sounds nice to think about, Okay, my partner is uh, um, exotic, or like this is a a person with a whole universe inside of them that I don't understand, and mm-hmm. I have the opportunity and the privilege to spend so much time with this person and get to know her and find out these brilliant things about her that mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't have without other kind of digging more. So. Yeah, it's cool. So it sounds like it's all of these are like various avenues to keep some excitement and keep some like an air, an air of mystery rather than kind of assuming that we know everything about them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people will be kind of open book and tell you everything you want to know and other people take a while to trust and be open. But I think the step one of my book is, is empathy. And that's a skill that is just tough to master. Mm. Um, and, and I keep, you know, we all say, Oh, I have empathy for that person, but you have to be able to communicate it. Can you really sense or uh, make good guesses about what the other person is experiencing? And can you find words to articulate it or reflect it back? Because that, um, is also a great way to connect, to be curious, but also to diffuse arguments. If I have empathy for what you're feeling, even though I don't agree with you, but I can say, Oh, you're mad at me because I, um, because I didn't um, clean up the bathroom after I left the room and you feel like it's disrespectful to you. You know, I could also say, well, I was in a hurry and I didn't have time to do that, but that's not going to help repair First, I have to have empathy. I have to try to get, why is this person so mad at me? Why is this person so upset with me? Um, and then can move from there to um, repairing things and to have a deeper connection. But, you know, as a therapist in grad school, I mean, that's, you practice over and over again how to communicate empathy. And so step one of empathy is, is finding words for all the emotions that we have. You know, we all know angry, sad, mad, happy. Um, but can we, <laughs> right? Right. But, and that's a good place to start. But, you know, there's a billion levels of different emotions. And so we have to figure out how to increase our emotional vocabulary. And so in order to repeat, to make guesses about what the other person is feeling, um, mm. as well as ourselves. Yeah. And then it's it's finding ways to say, Okay, so you're feeling this because this, this, and this. And, and that's what I try to teach couples is how do you communicate empathy um, and do it over and over again? Because our first reaction is to be defensive. If you're mad at me, I'm going to be yes, butting you. I'm going to be, no, that's not true. Yes, but I was here. Yes, but I didn't mean that. And so the challenge is how to stick with the other person and communicate empathy before you get into your yes, buts or your defensive stance. Um, that helps the other person also be able to listen and mm-hmm. connect with you if they feel heard. And that's again, back to the 
couples that would come for um, repair after their affair was, you know, the, the wounded person just needed to talk, talk, talk about how hurt they are, hurt they are, hurt they are. And it really was a plea to be heard, to be validated, to have someone have empathy for them. And that was fine for me as a therapist to communicate empathy, but really the, um, the partner needs to be the one to truly connect and really be able to say, I hear you. I get it. I feel your pain. I understand how upset you are. Hmm. Um, I have such respect for anyone who could do that because how scary, you know, to, to have that trust shattered and then to try to make the step to repair it. But that involves more work and more vulnerability for the person who's wounded. Right. Right. That's yeah, you know, incredible. So I, and I also understand why a third of the people just don't <laughs> to be like, yeah, exactly. In some ways it's easier to walk away. Right? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I have like a checklist or tip list for the person that was wounded, you know, that they, they get to be in charge. I get to ask for what they need. They get to make the choices and they don't have to know today what they want, you know, that they can ride the journey and see what happens and decide if they're going to stick it out or not. It is interesting. I was reflecting on one of my couples that did last. He had had, they'd probably been married probably 30, 40 years also. And he had had a series of affairs and she, um, she was pissed. Of course she was pissed when she finally discovered it, but she also was like, damn it. This next, decade of our life is for me and you're going to do what I want. And she, nice. she was uh clear. And part of it was sex, sexual, her sexuality. She's like, ah, we're going to really um, spend more time meeting my emotion, my physical needs. And um, he went along with it. And I, you know, would love to know how we <laughs> do now, but yeah, yeah. She yeah. was, I mean, then people will come in. They're like, morally don't believe in divorce or, you know, worried about their kids or that's so whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the morally don't believe in divorce piece. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Look I mean, I, again, I respect it in a, in a sense, but it's like, you're going to let the rest of your life be defined by this yeah. set of like doctrines that, have been disseminated and you can't even figure out where they came from. They're just so deep in your brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the shame game, you know, like how people judge me. And I think that's shifted. Certainly. True. Um, I've also never been married, so I can't probably shouldn't run my mouth on it, but you, you get to have an opinion. No, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, the, again, the secrecy of affairs hits even the wounded person. They're, they don't really want to talk to other people about what happened because mm-hmm. <clears throat> they feel somehow it reflects on them that they weren't good enough or didn't do enough or, you know, it's their fault their spouse wandered. Um, and so, and they're afraid of getting bad advice, you know, or, you know, and so that's, it's tough because it's really super tough. Who can you trust? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very tough. Yeah. But I, that's a hilarious example. She's like, all right, Mr. Big Sex Drive, like, yeah. let's, let's put turn. you to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She was like, my turn. Yeah. I know. I, I have some fun stories. My favorite client was um, a couple who were um, polyamorous. They had, mm. I was going to ask you, know, you about this. Have, yeah. They agreed to have other partners and, um, but they came to therapy because she was starting to have like coffee or lunch with the part, the third party. And so that was a cheating that was cheating on their relationship. And, um, he felt violated. He felt like it was a breach of their contract and that, he, you know, she was emotionally getting connected. I mean, they had, they had okayed being physically connected to other people, but um, when she started to get emotionally connected to this other person without him being part of it, that was a violation. It was like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. How, how did yeah. she respond to that? Um, I think he asked her to quit having 
seen this person. And again, see people drop out of therapy. You don't really know sometimes. Did she uh, (laughs) choose to? Yeah. I don't really know how they resolved. Mm -hmm. That's such Mm -hmm. a, yeah. The polyamory is so interesting Mm because I feel like I would imagine it takes a very like specific set of attributes in both people to make that work. Yeah. I mean, I had to, you know, squash my curiosity and find out more and stick with the presenting issue that was at hand of her having coffee with the person. But yeah, I don't know enough about that. I just know it's a larger community Mm -hmm. than I was aware of. Totally. Yeah. Especially Mm -hmm. out here in the Bay area. Mm -hmm. And my understanding, like, I'm sure everyone had, everyone has different motivation around it, but it's kind of the idea that like true love is to let your partner explore and connect and find their own passion. It's kind of like like almost you know in a monogamous relationship there's a there's an understood or explicitly communicated sense of okay, like we're gonna dive deep between us and that will be the exploration like we, we were talking about and like this kind of um, experience previously of being single, for example, of me and new people, new connections, kind of having that like really open mindset, something about that changes. There's, you know, every couple is different, but for example, you can still make friends, which is awesome because we're all human. We need connection, but you know, uh, an, an intimate lunch with a stranger probably doesn't happen anymore. But in a polyamorous relationship, it's like true love is letting that person do that. And, you know, it's kind of like not, it's like the extreme opposite or like going towards like love is not ownership. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, it is yeah. interesting. <laughs> and again, not my area of expertise, but I think, you know, the, the desire to have fun, the desire to feel connected, that's universal. Um, and the, um, the danger of getting emotionally connected to someone that's not your partner, you know, you have to be aware of where that line is, where all of a sudden it's uh, not okay in mm-hmm. terms of whatever you and your partner decide is okay. That's the challenge. Totally. Yeah. That's a great takeaway too, as far as prevention, right? And you know, what we can kind of share with people listening about how to prevent ending up in, in your, in your office, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like boundaries and being honest yeah. about, right. Hey, this thing, you know, makes me uncomfortable and also mm-hmm. being brave to share, Hey, this need isn't being met of mine, you know? Mm-hmm. So rather than going off and having an affair, you know, I'm going to communicate that to you. Right. Yeah. And that's part of the um, homework I give clients is that they need to have at least a monthly, if not more often, check in with each other, which by asking, how are we doing? How are we doing as a couple? How are you doing in terms of getting your needs met? What what work do we need to do to improve? I mean, that kind of um, um, evaluation that we tend to just get busy, you know, and get one foot in front of the other and we'd forget to stop and say, wait, how, how is this? What's the state of this relationship? Is it where we want it? What are our goals? You know, what are we doing? Right. You know, that kind of connecting time to really reflect together. Um, and again, there's stages in relationships, you know, like when you have little kids, um, you're just so busy. <laughs> you're so <laughs> sleep deprived and yeah. you don't really have a lot of privacy. And so it's really powerful, powerfully important to, to figure out how and when, and it may be only a 10 minute conversation versus, you know, a two hour dinner together. But that's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's accepting too of the different phases of life and, um, mm. and where you're at, how to get there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, so on the, just tying it back in with the, the kind of podcast theme and this, this mm-hmm. effort for kind of healthy communication and 
you know, how we can encourage men to yeah, be more transparent and more authentic and expressive. You know, do you have any uh, reflections on that or observations from your, from your career and personal life? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the, the male stereotype is changing. I'm seeing it change. Um, you know, but the old days of the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Marlboro man image, you know, the stoic, silent, uh, tough guy kind of thing. And I think, you know, some of that's still perpetuated in our media. Um, and there's a little more balance perhaps, but I think the reality is we still need to teach our males that it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to express them. It's okay to, um, to say things out loud. And, and, and that's, that's the goal here. And so to translate it to this work, it's, it's helping um, both parties, but if specific to your audience, males learn how to say things out loud to um, just hope, you know, to help to get them to realize that if they just want to avoid a conversation, it's not going to have a good ending that you have to have the courage. And, and that's, that's the other um, ability to, to rethink the definition of courage. You know, courage is, is to be, allow yourself to be humble and allow yourself to be vulnerable and allow yourself to be open versus stuff it and, and not say things. Mm. Um, you know, and it, for some reason, I mean, I find that on both male and female. I mean, I think there's this fear if I say too much, then it'll stir the pot. And so, you know, I'll just stay silent and, you know, hopefully you'll guess what I'm feeling and thinking. Um, but, you know, they really... Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Nah, not, not good. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, there's red flags always in relationships. And if you notice that early on you're pulling teeth to get the other person to talk or um, find out things about them that, you know, that's scary. It's scary. You want to, you know, cause there's a, that wonderful high when we start relationships, you know, it's, we feel so good and the other person seems so fabulous and interesting. And then over time you start to learn more about who they are. And so, you know, my, my, pushes make sure you don't jump into relationships but give it time to evolve and um discover who the people are nice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i think i told you my, the last time we talked i used to work with at-risk teenagers and with uh, who had been kicked out of school they're in long-term suspension rooms and i'd found this video um by jackson katz and i know he's remade one and it was about um it's called Tough Guys, Violence, Media, and the Crisis in Masculinity. Um, and he he gave great illustrations of the Sylvester Stallone, the type characters who were like, you know, I'm, and the message of being, you know, this is how you become a male. Um, a good male is by being rough and tough and stoic. And um, so we would talk about that especially with this, this population because um, they're guarded. I mean, we have to all, especially in high school and middle school, you know, it's not necessarily safe to, to be openly vulnerable and emotional, especially for males. And so, you know, that's the cultural uh, stereotype. We have to challenge how to allow that to be okay for boys to, be a human. It's mm. a good way to put did it. You did you experience yeah. that in middle school? Yeah. Yeah. High school was an all boys school. So there was definitely um, a good bit of that. I think that I was lucky because <clears throat> I had a, uh, my sister and my mom had a heavy hand in my shaping Mm -hmm. from their personalities and you know, they're pretty kick-ass. So, and there was a balance in my, and my dad was not like 
he didn't really perpetuate, I would say, the negative stereotypes at all. Like he was quite mm-hmm. affectionate and always told me he mm-hmm. loved me and big hugs and stuff. So yeah, there was there was a healthy amount of expression. And actually because I played it's interesting, and this this bit of my identity is still ongoing. Like because I played rugby, I felt like uh, that side of me was like affirmed, you know, is like mm-hmm. I can be myself and this person that you see today, but it was almost like because or that confidence or that self um, worth, I guess, came from because I can play this like really violent sport, you know? Right. So like right. I can't be challenged on the like tough guy part, you know? And so that's like, I don't know. It's cool because it kind of enabled me to, I think, be eccentric and, you know, evolve into the person I am. But also, like, me or anyone else shouldn't need that to have permission to be eccentric, you know? You don't need the rugby to help validate. Because it kind of affirms the stereotype. It's like, as a male, like, because I have this, like, you know, uh, outlet of aggression and like, that's part of my identity, then it's okay to also be expressive rather than just, you know, like you said, allowing boys to just be human, you know, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not they have some more traditional kind of, uh, outlet for aggression. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, one could argue that you were well-rounded, that you had, mm-hmm. you, know, you could do both and you could find the balance between, um, yeah, that you didn't uh, take your rugby stance out into the world with you in terms of how you interacted with people. Right. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. It's good to, cause I have friends that, Yeah. I, th- I think ultimately people like who care and who are not burdened with like depression, anxiety kind of evolve into who they're meant to be. And not that mm-hmm. people with depression, anxiety can't, but I don't know. It seems like I have friends who were like me and friends who didn't have, you know, like the macho or whatever outlet and like, we're all fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it, it's okay. <laughs> Oh, there's yeah. so many, so many life experiences that yeah, yeah. We can't predict exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like accepting. I mean, I think it's cool that you're analyzing uh, or reflecting on the past experiences you had and how it shaped you and how it's, you know making guesses about what impacts, for example, your sisters and moms had, and, um, and how that's evolved into your relationships today with people and in your. Per- your perspective of the world. Um, yeah, I think that's, it's great. It's a great exercise to kind of stop and look back. Um, I know I used to run these conferences for girls primarily called empowering young women and was trying to help them recognize that, um, their self-esteem, their self-worth, their self-value had a lot more to do with how they looked, um, and, uh, and the importance of relationships. And so then I was asked to work with boys to do some boys things. And I was a little uncomfortable because obviously I'm not male. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was with fifth grade boys. And so I kind of was an advisor and they assembled a panel of high school boys to come talk to the fifth grade boys. And the message seemed to be, don't worry, guys, you'll eventually get bigger and stronger and you'll be fine then. <laughs> I was kind of like, wait, no, 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 that's not the message. <laughs> um, but And so many of their testimonies, honestly, were about the power of their coaches and the messages mm-hmm. the coaches gave them. Uh, so I don't want to minimize that. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to minimize the fear of being mm, perceived as small or weak. You know, I think um, it, it is. It is what is in male culture, certainly, mm. uh, and maybe in somewhat in the female culture. Um, so, you know, we're not trying to condemn that. I mean, there really are male-female differences in terms of how we're wired. Um, but I think, you know, we, as a culture, we continue to question and 
critique and suggest maybe different ways of being. Um, and so yeah. you, you turn on the TV, it's a whole range of messages, right? Mm-hmm. The tough guy message to the self-effacing self, you know, humorous messages, you know, there's just a lot. Totally. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I love, I think team sports and these outlets for everyone are awesome. Um, yes. but we're, we're coming up on time. So we'll jump over to the, uh, the three things game. Oh yeah. Three things game. Oh yeah. I'm ready. All right. So, uh, what month is your birthday in? October. October. Okay. So you are after me. I'll go first. Okay. Here's my question. Okay. What are three things I've learned about family? Um, I think that family can be um, made. It's not just, you know, blood family. Nice. I th- number two, those relationships, while they are, all right, so now I'm talking about like immediate family, um, need to be maintained. And yes, they'll always be there, hopefully, but. I don't know. It's not like some magic balm that like, okay, just cause this person's my mom, like they're always going to be, you know, mm-hmm. super close or like the effort is still required, you know, mm-hmm. it's still a relationship. We're still two humans. Uh, and I would say number three that, you know, it's a good reminder just to not take it for granted, even from, the most distant of families to the most tight, like life is fragile. Right. And just, I don't know, Mm -hmm. don't take it for granted. Right. Cool. Cool thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. We get to define who our family is and we know we need to prioritize them and, and put effort to maintaining those relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And here's your question. What are three things you've learned about gratitude? Well, my first thought was when I really make my gratitude list, it brings me lots of joy. Nice. It really makes me go, yes, you know, things are good. And I have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be um, appreciative of. So I think to really Number one, to recognize the good things in my life can bring me joy. And the second thing is on those down days, um, it's easier to focus on what's not going right. And so it's really intentionally think about gratefulness and and the good Mm -hmm. things that have happened around me. And the third thing would be to really focus on the little things that I should be grateful for. Like for some reason today I was taking a shower and I'm like, I am so grateful. I have clean water with water pressure and heat and, you know, it doesn't smell bad and it's, I'm not going to get sick from it. I mean, I, yeah. it's something it, I take for granted, but it's, it's really making sure I notice um, little things that are so germane in my life or, or I take for granted in my life. Awesome. Yeah. So the main sense of a gratitude journal um, reminding yourself about how, you know, the, the, the things you are grateful for when you're not feeling great mm-hmm. and then focusing on little things like creature, I don't know, like small things that in our, you know, privileged American lives, we take for yeah. granted, but actually a lot of people in the world don't have these things. So it should be, yeah. yeah right. Grateful. Right. For them. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Dr. Miller, well, thank you so much for coming coming back on the pod. Um, Thanks, Jesus. Yeah. And, I, and the, enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Good conversation. I appreciate it. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. You're, you're a really awesome, thoughtful person. Thanks for, for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Thank you so and much. And your wisdom. Yeah. And the folks can head over to drdebmiller.com. Yes. And, we are Dr. Mm-hmm. And your mm-hmm. book is More Than Sorry, Five Steps to Deepen Your Apology After You Have Committed Infidelity. Correct. Available on Amazon, like everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Else. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye.